0: Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sourced through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, a court challenge to the widely used abortion drug highlights our government's role in, essentially, promoting chemically-induced abortions. In
1: 2016, the FDA said it no longer wants to hear about any complications unless it
0: kills the woman. Blue state governors across the country are responding in a dark and revealing way. Albert Moeller. It is defiance against any pro-life measure. In the face of transgender radicalism, we'll look at states that are pushing
2: back. It creates penalties for any doctor that would enable a minor to identify with identity inconsistent with the minor's sex.
0: As well as some very courageous athletes, All-American swimmer Riley Gaines.
3: Men and women are different in ways that give males advantages when competing in something that requires sheer athleticism or strength. It's that simple.
0: I'm Scott Furrow, host of the Pastor Scott Show, coming to you from my home station of KKLA in Los Angeles. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at KKLA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the issue of abortion, more specifically, chemically induced abortion. In the wake of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, we have seen an acceleration of an already developing pattern. Abortion advocates and pro-abortion government leaders are pushing this sort of abortion, induced by a pill, typically in the privacy of the home. More than half of all abortions are now chemically induced. But the approval process for one of these drugs Mufipristone has come under scrutiny. In Texas, a district court has ordered a block to the drug. On the very same day, a judge in Washington state issued a conflicting ruling prohibiting the FDA from pulling the drug. I turn to Dr. Ingrid Skop of the Lozier Institute. First of all, that statement there by CNN kind of, you know, I just thought, is that true that the abortion pill, uh, better known, I think, is RU486. People might be more familiar with that. That term than the medical name for it. But is it true that that pill has less uh, side effects or uh, problems than Tylenol or uh, Viagra?
1: Well, that statement by CNN just shows how far the um, pro-abortion media will go to essentially gaslight the American people. What they are comparing when they make that statement is the fact that about 600 Americans die every year from Tylenol overdoses. So this is way too much Tylenol. Mm. Um, And of course, there are men who have cardiac arrest from Viagra because it is a cardiac um, effective drug. But you know what? The um, CDC does not really care to track statistics about how many women die after abortion. Um, We do know that at least 28 women have died following chemical abortion. But we also know that for various reasons, most of the data the CDC gets comes from death certificates. And the deaths that follow abortion, particularly if they're a mental health death or a suicide from a coerced abortion, or you can imagine the anxiety, depression, substance abuse, um, overdoses that occur when women are traumatized by their abortion, the CDC can't pick up any of that data. And just for your listeners, uh, because I've a lot of confusion about how chemical abortion pills work. It's two drugs, mifepristone blocks progesterone receptors. That's the drug that the FDA has tightly regulated, and we can talk about what's been going on there. It's followed by mesoprostol that essentially induces labor and induces contractions in the uterus to express the tissue. And it doesn't always work. Um, The data that the U.S. abortion industry distributes, and again, they try to sugarcoat it, just like they said it's safer than Tylenol. The FDA has taken that data, has been very uncritical, and has used it to say, oh, look how safe it is. And in fact, 2016, the FDA said it no longer wants to hear about any complications unless it kills the woman. So we can dig into the FDA malfeasance a little bit more. But it, step after step, um, for the past 23 years, the FDA has allowed this process to be politicized. It has loosened restrictions on abortion pills because it wants widespread abortions. And um, it's hurting women.
0: You have to give – if it's it's not a real choice if women are not informed of all of the possible complications or possible options that exist. It's not really even choice.
1: Yeah, that, that is absolutely the case, and that is one of the um, uh, points made by the attorneys in the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine lawsuit is that you can't even give informed consent because the FDA does not even know how frequent the complications are. So women – again – they're told it's safer than tylenol that's not true informed consent when that woman chooses a chemical abortion that has a 1 out of 20 chance of causing her to end up in an emergency room having emergent surgery yeah so so you're right they 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 point the finger anywhere else but at what the action is and that is the the elective killing of a human being
0: can i ask you this question you know the studies that i've seen show that the number of abortions have been dropping for many years would you say that that is correct, or does that not account for the number of these kinds of abortions with the pill? Like, do we even have any idea of how many babies are aborted because of the the pill?
1: Well, that's a very good point that you made, and it goes to the fact that nothing about abortion data collection is mandatory in the United States. So the CDC reports a number, and the Guttmacher Institute, which is the research arm associated with the abortion industry, consistently reports about 20 to 30 percent more abortions every year. So we don't even know the number. And by the way, you're in California. Your state refuses to report any data at Mm. all to the CDC. So nobody, I mean, you have a lot of abortions there. We know that, but they don't bother to tell the CDC about any of those.
0: Well, and that says an awful lot about the the whole thing, right? It's another place mm -hmm. where clearly we're not interested in truth, which to me Mm -hmm. says we're not interested in in protecting not just the unborn child, of course, but also the women Mm -hmm. that we really, we say... We're pro-women, but we're not.
1: Yeah, and in, in answer to your to your question about how many, for years the numbers have been dropping. So in the 1990s, there were about a million and a half abortions every year in our country, and they've dropped dramatically, but you know what? They're taking the turn back up, and we think it's because of the chemical abortion pills yeah. being so readily available. In 2020, they were more than half of all abortions in our country. It's estimated, again, in the next couple of years it'll be up around 70%.
0: Yeah. yeah. Tell us more about these cases and uh, what is going to happen in the court uh, with these different cases and about the abortion pill.
1: Yeah, so the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the FDA case um, is brought by five physician groups, and they have been trying since the mifepristone uh, chemical abortion pill was approved in the year 2000, they've been trying since that time going through the avenues to say the FDA should have never approved the pill. They broke their own rules on a number of occasions in order to approve it. Most egregiously, they did it under a subpart H accelerated approval regulation, which is only to be used for drugs that treat life-threatening conditions for which there is no other treatment. Mm. And of course, that was not the case. Most pregnancies are nowhere near life-threatening. And you know, before these pills were approved, There were about a million and a half surgical abortions in our country every year. So surgical abortion was widely available. It has far less complications abortions, about four times less complications. And so why did they do that? Why did they approve these pills that were not necessary and were more dangerous? And since that time, the FDA has removed the protective restrictions. Um right now, I don't know if you know this. A woman can get pills without ever looking a doctor in the eye, without having an ultrasound to make sure that we know the gestational age, that she doesn't have an ectopic pregnancy, without any labs. They can order them online and get them delivered to their mailbox totally outside of medical supervision. Well, this is abhorrent that the FDA has allowed this. So this judge and this lawsuit is to hold the FDA accountable Because their job is to protect the American public from dangerous drugs. And in this case, they have not been.
0: As blue state governors see a threat to access to this abortion pill, they've begun to respond in a manner that's most revealing. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing
4: podcast. Certain states have announced that they are stocking up on the abortion pill, Mifepristone in particular, the pill at the center of this legal action, they are stocking up, and in some cases, they are stocking up to the tune of millions of dollars. What is the importance of this statement about stocking up on these pills? It is defiance against any pro-life measure. It is defiance against this federal court in Texas and this federal court judge. And furthermore, it is an act that is blatantly political on the one hand and moral, as in immoral when it comes to the other hand, But it is likely to be politically popular in these states. What are the states? Well, for example, New York State, Kathy Hochul announcing her government is buying pills. Jay Inslee of Washington, he was one of the first, by the way, to make the announcement that the state was buying pills through the budget for the prisons, by the way. In Massachusetts, Governor Mara Healy has announced that she, too, by executive order, is buying Mifepristone. Indeed, the headline in the Boston Globe tells us that she's actually buying a stockpile to ensure access to medication abortion. And then you have California, the nation's most populous state. California Governor Gavin Newsom, the liberal's liberal, said on Monday that he has made plans by executive action to secure an emergency stockpile, by his description, of up to 2 million pills of mesopristol. Now, as you notice these announcements, there's two different drugs. You have mifepristone. That's the one that the federal judge in Texas has said was illegally or unprocedurally affirmed by the FDA, and thus he put a squash on it. That's been appealed by the Biden administration. We don't know exactly how that's going to turn out. You have a dueling federal judge on the other coast that would certainly cover California and Washington. But in this case, you have to watch which drug is being cited here. In the case of California, the press tells us that it's mesopristol. But, quote, officials say California currently has more than 250,000 of the pills already on hand, which were purchased for about $100,000. Quote, that's enough pills to cover an estimated 12,000 thousand only abortions, according to a spokesman for the governor. Quote, and the state is prepared to purchase more. In Washington, Governor Jay Inslee announced he was buying the other drug, a three-year supply of Mifepristone, that is the drug that is the subject of this court action. But what you see here is the extremism, this incredible extremism of pro-abortion governors and pro-abortion states to say, we're so committed to abortion that we're going to declare it basically a state emergency if a woman doesn't have access to an abortion and to do so by means of a pill that brings about the abortion itself. Now, just remember that the majority of abortions undertaken in the United States right now are by pill. It's by either of these two pills or it's by a combination that seems to be what is pharmaceutically described as preferred. You also have a major statement coming out by pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributors complaining against the federal court decision. You have a lot of political momentum building here, and it just shows, here's the saddest, most heartbreaking thing, it shows the absolute determination, the absolute enthusiasm for abortion on the parts of some in our society. Coming up,
3: men and women are different in ways that give males advantages when competing in something that requires sheer athleticism or strength. It's that simple.
0: All-American swimmer Riley Gaines in the next segment of The Christian Outlook.
5: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
0: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow, the host of The Pastor Scott Show. Great to be with you. The pace of moral change we've seen in our nation has been staggering. Even to those like myself who've been watching developments in recent years, those who are at what I guess you'd call the leading edge of the sexual revolution have crossed some lines, like the sexualization of our children. Now they are getting some pushback. Don Crow turned to Matt Staver of the Liberty Council from WAVA in the nation's capital.
2: Well, let's go to Tennessee first. Take us to this remarkable story in the governor there. Well, there's two bills that the governor, Bill Lee, just recently signed. One bill is the bill that bans uh, puberty blockers and hormone therapies and mutilating surgeries for minors. And it actually creates penalties for any doctor that would enable a minor to identify with or live as a purported identity inconsistent with the minor's sex. So this bans the puberty blockers, the irreversible consequences that they have from those drugs and hormone treatment, cross-sex hormones, as well as this mutilating surgery so now tennessee joins a number of other states uh, along the same line and so now we have alabama arizona arkansas florida by virtue of the medical board not statute yet but it's the same consequence mississippi tennessee texas south dakota and utah all coming online and in fact in the last two weeks florida tennessee and south dakota Came on board with regards to banning these puberty blockers, cross sex hormones, and mutilating surgery. Tennessee also actually is the first in the country to ban adult cabaret performances on public property or other locations where it could be viewed by a minor. And it defines this adult cabaret performance to include topless dancers go-go dancers exotic dancers strippers male or female impersonators who provide entertainment that appeals to a prurient interest or similar entertainers regardless of whether or not performed for consideration or for money so that's the first one in the country that essentially is going after these uh, drag queen story hours that are becoming so pervasive and insidious among our children. Also along those lines, a Rasmussen Reports survey just found that 58% of respondents at least somewhat support or approve legislation that makes it illegal to perform sex change, so-called surgery, on minors. 48% strongly approve uh, so you've got a super majority approving of the kind of legislation that we're seeing happening around the country to protect these minors from these profiteers and these LGBTQ people that are pushing this agenda that is, frankly, irreversibly harming our youth.
0: We are also seeing pushback from some very courageous athletes, women who are fighting for the integrity of women's sports. The most recent example here is Riley Gaines, an all-American swimmer who has decided to speak up. She joined Charlie Kirk to talk about her recent event at the University of San Francisco.
6: Walk us through the events that occurred Thursday evening at San Francisco State University.
3: Absolutely. Um, so I had arrived to the event. I was supposed to meet the campus police an hour and a half before, but they did not show up. Um, and so I carried on. I did my speech. It, of course, was filled with protesters, but... For the most point, or for the most part at this point, they were pretty peaceful. Um, it was after the event when it turned not peaceful. Um, ambushers rushed into the room. They turned off the lights. They were flickering the lights and they rushed me. Um, I was physically and um, verbally assaulted. To which um, I was rushed out of the room and I couldn't exit the building because they were coming from every direction. And so I was barricaded in a separate classroom building for three hours after this.
6: So, Riley, were these students or were these outside agitators or do you not know?
3: I believe for the most part they were students. Um, Most of them were relatively young, so I think they were students.
6: And is it correct that they were asking for money while they were holding you hostage, almost ransom payments?
3: As crazy as that sounds, yes. Um, for they were trying to negotiate with the dean of students. Um, they were saying that if I am getting paid to be there from the school, which I wasn't getting paid to be there from the school anyways, but if I was getting paid to be there, then it's only fair that they get paid. If I wanted to make it to so home safely, it's only fair that I pay them money.
6: That's kidnapping. I mean, literally, that's extortion. It's kidnapping. So I'm just confused. I mean, the police, they were protecting you in this room for multiple hours. I'm sure after 10, 15, 20 minutes, you probably struck up a conversation with them. I I know that you're thankful that you didn't get hurt and they were there. But at some point, did you be like, yo, can you just like get some handcuffs and solve this?
3: Absolutely. I asked them, you know, why are you guys not asserting force to get me out of this building? Because I had a flight that I missed, um, which I didn't want to miss. I didn't want to get stuck in San Francisco an extra day. And so I was telling them, you know, I need to get out. I need to go to the airport. And they said, we don't want to assert any kind of force. Um, Clearly, it was because they didn't want to be seen as anything other than an ally to that community because they knew what it meant for them. They knew it put their job at risk if they were to... Um, be accused of any of these things and so they would rather not do their job um, than be seen as again anything other than an ally they didn't want to be racist or transphobic or any of these other things
6: so i I just want to one part of the story i think that hasn't really been focused on these people stood outside there for three hours i mean and then i have to be told by conservatives they don't have time to go vote i mean i just these people really care about this i mean three hours to go hold you hostage on a college campus. Do you have any thoughts on that?
3: It's amazing that people put this much effort and time into something that they don't like. I don't even know if I put this much time and effort into things that I do like. <laughs> so it's amazing that people will go to these lengths to silence. Well, so I know why they do.
6: Yeah, we know why. But Riley, I have to interrupt you. This is why they've taken so much ground, though. They care. I mean, here it is. It's a Thursday night before Good Friday. I don't think these people exactly observe Easter, but that's a separate issue. You know, in in downtown San Francisco, you're going to kind of ask you about your speech in a second. But they're willing to basically dedicate four or five hours. If you count the prep time, sit through your speech and then stand outside where you are for three hours. These people are just hostages like it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. And d- d- demanding that you come out, obviously wishing you harm because they assaulted you. And so let's kind of then build it out. What was your speech about? What was your argument? What, what, what did you say that made them so full of rage and fury and anger that made them want to kidnap you?
3: Um, of course, what has thrusted me into this position of being some sort of a public figure is taking a public stance and acknowledging that men and women are different in ways that um, give males advantages when competing in something that requires sheer athleticism or strength. It's that simple. Men should not compete against women. And so my speech, I highlighted the work that you put in as a female athlete. I, of course, am 22. I just graduated college, but I swam since I was four years old. I swam in college six hours every single day, three hours before 8 a.m. And so I highlight this. I highlight, of course, our national championships. I highlight what that locker room piece looked like. I highlighted the silencing that other female athletes are dealing with, um, coaches, parents, what that looks like. Um, and why denying objective truth is harmful, to which I was met with, again, violence.
0: Coming up.
7: Instead of strengthening marriage, the sexual revolution increased divorce, increased fatherless homes, increased abortion.
0: Rethinking the entire sexual revolution when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Scott Furrow. Sex without consequences, the freedom to marry and to get divorced quick and easy, and the freedom to love whomever you want. These are some of the core messages of the sexual revolution. Some 60 years into all of this, how's it working for us? Mary Eberstadt is the author of Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. It's a follow-up to her 2012 release, Adam and Eve After the Pill. She was a guest of Eric Metaxas.
8: I have to ask you, um, why did you feel compelled uh, to write a whole new book uh, 11 years after the first one? Because the first one was, it was a seminal work, very widely read uh, what is it uh, that led you to say I want to write uh, a whole new book uh, that really is dealing with more of the same issue?
7: So the first book looked at what I called the microscopic fallout of the birth control pill and the sexual revolution. I was looking at the effects on men, women, children, romance, down on the ground using all empirical evidence. There's no theology in either of these books But 10 years later, there was enough new evidence to widen the aperture and to say, look, what has the sexual revolution done in the broadest possible way? How has it transformed our politics, our society, and Christianity itself? And so the second book is looking at those three large areas to see how we've managed to change ourselves since the sexual revolution took hold.
8: Well, it is an amazing thing because— As we both know, you uh, much more than I, the sexual revolution was a genuine revolution. It changed everything so fundamentally that most people, including devoted Christians, are unaware of the ramifications. What happens when you divorce the sexual act from procreation, from the possibility of procreation? Most people don't think that through, what that does. Um, it, it, it really, uh, it doesn't just cheapen uh, the sexual act and marriage. It cheapens life itself. The ramifications are so dramatic and so dark. So so let's get into it. What do you say uh, in, in this book uh, that is new and that we need to talk about?
7: Well, so if you go back to the beginning, Eric, back to the 1960s, people had rosy forecasts for what would happen thanks to the sexual revolution. Some people argued that it would strengthen marriage, for example. Some people argued that the widespread adoption of contraception would reduce abortion. This was actually Margaret Sanger's argument. And so there were reasons back then to feel hopeful about what would happen. But 60 years later, we realized that things turned out exactly the opposite of what had been anticipated. So for example, instead of strengthening marriage, the sexual revolution increased divorce, increased fatherless homes, increased abortion. And in this second book I get into some of the evidence. This is such a startling conclusion that uh, economists have looked at it to try and understand why these things all increased after the sexual revolution instead of decreasing as had been forecast. And so what we see, big picture, is that the sexual revolution ushered in numerous acts of what I call human subtraction, acts that take people out of other people's lives, whether it's by abortion or broken homes or fatherlessness or smaller families. In other words, people today have far fewer people who have their backs, they have far fewer people in their families on whom they can depend and this is not uh, to point fingers, this is to say that this is the world we're living in where many people no longer have say a model of what masculinity looks like because there's not a father in the home or they no longer have siblings or extended family in number these things have changed us and We have a lot of empirical evidence about it, and I wanted to put that evidence forward because very soon, Eric, we will be living in a world where no one remembers life before these revolutionary changes. So I think it's important to have a conversation about them. If you look at modern sociology, you will find that there's been an explosion of what is called loneliness studies. Uh, All you have to do is Google, loneliness, Portugal, loneliness, West Germany, loneliness, United States. And part of what I'm trying to do is connect those dots. Why is there an explosion of loneliness across the Western world? Uh, We see it at the beginning of life, we see it among teenagers, we see it among 20-somethings, and we see it very clearly at the end of life. This is the effect of these uh, acts of human subtraction. And it's not doing anyone any favors. Coming up. What we are seeing here is a kind of proof of the wisdom Of Christian teaching that we have not seen elsewhere in history, that we have not seen until we started living in this post-revolutionary way.
0: More with Mary Eberstadt when the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment. Stay with us.
5: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
0: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, I'm Scott Furrow. For anyone who is coming into the subject of the sexual revolution from a Christian worldview, I don't think there's any question. The fruits of it are overwhelmingly negative. But the rottenness from these fruits runs deeper than we might recognize at first glance. Let's return to Mary Eberstadt with Eric Metaxas, talking about Adam and Eve after the pill revisited.
8: Only now, thanks to you uh, and a few others, the effects, dramatic negative effects, are being traced back to the sexual revolution, that all of these promises that were given out, and I think often very disingenuously, there there were people that they wanted a a rosy vision of of a a, a sexually free future, and what they promised, we now have enough um, data, enough decades have passed, that we in this case you can look at what actually has happened and you're te- you're telling us that it has been dramatically negative and you're giving us uh, a chapter and verse so so keep going you were talking about loneliness you were talking about teen suicides and depression uh about addiction how are those things Related because you can hear a skeptic say, Well, look, that's nonsense. There's no correlation between the sexual revolution and these other things. What do they have to do with each other?
7: Well, rather obviously, when you shrink the family, you shrink the number of people you can depend upon, as we were talking about with the example of who takes care of grandma and grandpa. And this has happened on a scale that has never been seen before in human history. But it's not only that you take people out of other people's lives you take social learning out with them and what I mean by that is that those with a robust family network have people they can ask for advice for example or people who can help them say start a business or whatever there are a lot of social resources in a family and so we have diminished those now I don't want to say this is all bad news Eric because the message of both these books is that we can see something very positive here. You know, Christianity has been taking a beating for a long time now in the modern West. And Christians in general seem to feel on the defensive. But what these books show is that there is vindication for Christian teaching in the kind of data that we're seeing. There is a a negative kind of vindication because throwing out the rule book that tells us to be fruitful and multiply for example or to marry or that we are brothers and sisters in Jesus throwing out all of those rules has not resulted in a happier place and again we can look at these negative indices one by one but what we are seeing here is a kind of proof of the wisdom of Christian teaching that we have not seen elsewhere in history that we have not seen until we started living in this post-revolutionary way and i find that fascinating and also something that i hope gives heart to religious believers out there because they are seeing a kind of proof that was never anticipated
8: well i was going to say enough time has passed that we've lived with the nonsense and we can we can see it now and that's what you write about in this book adam and eve after the pill revisited you You talk in the book about so many things. I want to make sure that we uh, uh, cover them. do you do talk about the uh, about the recent overturning of the Roe v Wade decision. Can you touch on that for a
7: moment? Yes, absolutely. That's at the end of the book, and I think it's very important because until now. For the last 60-plus years, we have been hearing that the sexual revolution is inevitable and all of this autonomy that we now claim is inevitable, that there's no turning back the clock, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now the decision in Dobbs overturns inevitability. In other words, it is the first example of major institutional rollback of the sexual revolution. Essentially, the Dobbs decision says that this claim to absolute autonomy does not in fact exist in the Constitution. What I'm doing is in this book is extending that claim and saying well actually it's not just about abortion. Maybe we've taken autonomy too far in other directions as well. But I think Dobbs is very important because around the world there are other countries grounded in the Western tradition that seem to have the idea that legalizing abortion was good for them too. Um, And it sends a message
8: that this very modern idea of pure autonomy has dramatic limits. And according to our constitution, one of those limits is this idea that everybody has some right in the constitution to an abortion. It's simply not there. You may want to have an abortion, you may have an abortion, but stop pretending that the founders in the Constitution uh, said, yes, you have that
7: right. Yes, and this is not only an American issue, Eric, it's also an issue for the whole Western world. And that's why I think Dobbs is such an invigorating decision, because there's that old saying, the law is a teacher. And Roe taught wrongly. And It is not only the United States Supreme Court that now recognizes that. This decision will have an effect on the rest of the world, the rest of the world that has followed our lead. And to me, that is just one example of what will be other forms of rollback to come, rollback of the sexual revolution and its works as people realize that whether it's constitutional or moral or just about the way we live now, that something has really run amok since the 1960s
8: well obviously uh, the most preposterous thing of all uh, is the transgender madness most americans whether they will say it or not uh, see madness uh, unfolding in other words i think most americans are very nice and they want to kind of go along and say well we'll accept this we'll accept that we don't want to we don't, we don't want to get in people's ways of doing whatever they like, whether I agree or don't agree. But when you see the fruit finally of all of these things, this to me is the, the horrible fruit, uh, the ugly fruit of the sexual revolution. In, in a way, it's a moment for us to process where, how far have we drifted, how, where have we come from, where are we now?
7: Yes, well, <clears throat> getting back to those uh, acts of human subtraction that we were talking about earlier, We have to understand the confusion out there, especially among young people. The transgender phenomenon is one example. My point is, given how we have reduced the number of people in our lives that we can learn from, who can be role models for us, the wonder would be if there weren't mass confusion, Eric. The wonder would be if people knew who they were. They don't, and it's partly because the revolution has stripped them of the human resources, to use that phrase in the sense that it should be used, for them to have fruitful, happy lives. Coming up. It's sad to see what a flattened view of humanity the secular world puts forward.
0: A few more minutes with Mary Eberstadt when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. As we watch in our culture today, the fruits of the sexual revolution, we see something positive. The norms and ideals for marriage and family and human sexuality that we see in scripture are good. Good for us as individuals, good for the communities in which we live, good for the culture and the nation that we love. Here again, Mary Eberstadt with Eric Metaxas
8: part of it i often think of you know burke's uh... little platoons the idea of the family as a force for good in society you and i both know that the idea of family the idea of motherhood and fatherhood uh, these things have been denigrated uh, since the advent of the sexual revolution and of course by certain people before that but but we are beginning to understand God's wisdom uh, in the idea that children are a blessing from the Lord. That is a fact. It is written in the Bible. It is incontrovertibly true. But now we can see that when you start saying, well, I don't really like, I don't like children. I'd rather have a cat. Uh, I'd rather, I don't want to bear the cat in my womb, but I can buy a cat. Uh, I can adopt a cat. And it's going to be easier on me. And what we're seeing, in fact, is no in many ways it's not we're we're learning these are hard lessons to learn but it is because of what you've been saying a repudiation of the biblical ideas these christian ideas the sanctity of family the sanctity of of marriage we're we're now essentially seeing if uh i guess it was cs lewis who said you know uh, uh, you can say to god thy will be done but at some point Uh, If you don't, he will say to you, thy will be done. And he will allow us, in a sense, to have our way. And that's what it looks like to me when we're talking about the sexual revolution. We've had things our way, and the results have just been dramatically
7: disastrous. I think that's true. And one of the things that I talk about in the book, Eric, is the difference between this sort of secular postmodern view of human beings and the Christian view of human beings it makes a big difference whether you believe that we are simply random collections of molecules created for fleeting temporary pleasure uh, or whether you think that you are made in the image of God and that you have a destiny in the cosmos and that you have brothers and sisters in fellowship etc it's sad to see what a flattened view of humanity the secular world puts forward And I believe that the churches could be reinvigorated if, from every pulpit, we were to hear this ennobled vision of what men and women are for, because the secular world is not giving it to people, especially young people.
0: That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to mention it to a friend. Go to ChristianOutlook.com and take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pashan and Wilbert Flores, I'm Scott Furrow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.